The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. In today's podcast, NPS student Joe Novak sits down and has a drink with U.S. Army Special Forces Officer Jonathan Fagans. Yeah, so like I said, you confuse me. You wear an Army uniform, you went to the Naval Academy, you did SEAL training, you're an SF officer. I feel like I'm talking to three people right now in front of me. Could you give me a rundown of how that all happened? Yeah, sure. So I guess I'll, I guess the best place to start is to start in my home. So I grew up in Orange County, California. My, my mom and dad, they raised us, you know, family first. You know, we went to church every Sunday, uh, education, uh, make sure you're always getting, you know, good grades. No matter what you're doing, um, you're standing out and you're being true to yourself and you're representing the family. So, I, you know, we played sports. And so when I was in high school, I had a coach, and just by my demeanor, his name was Coach Rao. Uh, God bless him. He passed away a while back. Um, he said, John, I think you'd be a be- I think you'd be a good fit for West Point, because he saw my demeanor, and I was just really, you know, taking charge of things on the field. And so he got me in touch with a recruiter, and um, the recruiter asked me, you know, you, you play a lot of you play a lot of sports, and you're involved in community service. You'd be a, you'd, just, you'd be a great a great candidate. And so I did all the paperwork, did all the application process. Uh, I'd apply for a congressional nomination. So I guess I didn't know that, but you need a congressional nomination to go to the service academy. And so it, it, I guess it came down to SAT scores. So here I am. I did you know I was a 3.5 GPA average. Nice community service. Did did every uh, did tons of different activities, sports. Took the SATs. I had the lowest SAT. I had like a 800. Mm-hmm. I think that's just by writing your name. And for some, <laughs> and for some reason, like I couldn't. I I just I, I didn't do well at tests. Like me timed on a, on a test is like is like the worst thing you could do. Like for me, I'd rather run 10 miles. And so I went to this prep school. It's called Northwestern Prep School in Mal- Malibu, California. It's next to Pepperdine, and it was designed to help me with my with my SAT scores. So I took. The SAT test took it three times, same score, and they were they were like, "Hey, what's 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 wrong, John? Like, you know, we're helping him." It's still, just it went, I think it went up like a little bit. There was a guy that came. I'm forgetting his name right now, but it'll come to me later. Uh, he was a recruiter. Tom Tashura is his name. Awesome, um, and he and he he knew about my story, and so um, and so he came. We he interviewed me, and he goes, "John, I'm gonna help you out," and so. After that, I went to uh, prep. I went to uh, prep school was only five five months long, so I went to a Cypress Junior College to finish out my my uh, my academic uh, during the spring. And so um, I got a call from somebody and say, "John, since you have bad SAT scores, you're gonna have to you're going to have to change the way people view about you." And so and so he goes, "Do whatever it takes." And so that those words were like, "Okay, this is on. It's on." And so. I literally wrote to every single board member, teacher, professor. I wrote to the staff. I even wrote to the president and the Congress leaders. And I said, hey, look, I just want to go to the Naval Academy. Here's all my academic transcripts. Here's 
all the you know sports write-ups, recommendations from other professors, counselors, teachers. I just want to I just want to get there. Just give me an opportunity. And so um, I did. I kept on kept on sending letters. Um, and then I get a call. It's at five. It's like it's like, it's like six in the morning on a Friday, and it's from a it's from a one of the board members. And he said, "Is this Mr. Mr. Fagans?" I go, "Yeah, I guess it is." I go, "Yeah, we understand you want to come here, but can you stop sending letters? You're you're making a lot of people upset." <laughs> I'm like, and at the back of my mind, like I smile. I'm like, "That's what I want. I want to make people upset." And so I, I go, "Yes, sir." And after I got the phone with him, I kept on sending more letters to the same people. Um, awesome. And and so uh, and so, a couple weeks goes by. I didn't hear anything. I get kind of depressed. And then Tom Deshure gives me a call early in the morning. He goes, "John, is this?" Is this a great right time to call? Goes, yes, sir. I get yes, sir. And he goes, I just want to let you know that you got accepted to the Naval Academy Prep School, which guarantees you admission to Naval Academy. Congratulations! And I start, I start crying. Dude, you're gonna, you're gonna make me choke up. Yeah. Oh like, my god. I start crying. Um, That's awesome. Woke up my parents, and uh, I think a lot of it was because um, I saw um, a few months ago. I saw a movie called Rudy, and it talked about a guy that no matter what happened and the challenges that he faced he never gave up even if his family didn't believe that he can do it like he still did it and and that was i think that was my case like i had fam- i had met members that were close to me that said that that didn't believe in me by their actions and i think that pushed me even harder so um yeah i'm getting emotional um so so praise God, um, I got in, got to the got to the prep school, and here I am um, at the prep school, in Newport, Rhode Island, playing football, playing football at the prep school. So it's only a one year gig, and then so that was a great learning experience uh, as far as understanding the academic load and also the military aspect. And so the following year, got to Naval Academy. First year is always a hard year, of course. All service academies, plebe year, you get crushed. I mean, that's you know, it's indoctrination phase. But that was like my first, um, my come my first exposure to like Division One football. Like when I was a kid, I used to always watch Notre Dame and Florida State, USC, and to see how these guys were were athletes. But now I got I got to you know, here I am. I'm I'm actually in the locker room training, and uh, so it was a very real experience for me. Um, so I went through my t- two three years, and when I was doing that. Um, I ran into a couple guys that were. I always saw them either running, they're swimming, training, and, and I always wondered what they were doing. And I asked one of them, uh, Clint Bruce, and I, and I and he said he wanted to be a seal. And I asked him, "What? What's a seal?" And he goes, well, <laughs> "He kind of laughed at me, and he goes, well, I love.' He, I remember the phrase he said, John. I just love climbing through. I love crawling through the mud. I'm like, you know what? I want to do that. And so." Um, so I realized a lot what uh, seals do, and so that's what I, that's the avenue that I took. So, and here it is, the Orange County guy. I didn't I didn't know how to swim, but I just knew how to uh, I know how to float in the water. I just didn't know how to swim. And so I had a buddy, his name's Clint Cornell. Um, he's a Navy EOD guy. He taught me how to swim, and here I am, you know, swimming, waking up early, playing water polo, training, running, doing pull-ups, um, just trying out to become a seal. And they only select sixteen. Out of the entire each class, they only select sixteen guys to go to SEAL training. Out of the academy. Out of the Naval right. Academy. Wow. So it's pretty. Um, it's a, a pretty small group of guys, and so you really have to. Everything has to be perfect, and it's based on interviews, and they do like a pre pre mini buds test to see if you're qualified. 
So I went to pre-mini buds, went to Coronado, uh, which was wow. awesome. I got to freeze with some 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 guys, had a great time out there, and just kind of also gave me exposure to kind of see what what if this is what I wanted to do, and it definitely was. Um, went to, so here it is. It was uh, I think it was called um, Selection Night. It was in February, and that's when they tell everyone what they're doing, and I got selected, and I <laughs> I just screamed. They had all of us in the they had all of us called the wardroom, and all and. Uh, they're saying everyone's name and they told them what they got, and everyone everyone knew like the entire school knew what I was, what I was trying to go be a seal, and so I never forget it. Uh, as the as they read my name, it was like a, you could hear a pin drop, and they said Spec War, and I screamed I'm like ah! I ran outside, ran my uh, ran grabbed my other buddy, um, his name's Tico Kofa, he's currently a seal, gave him a hug, hey dude I'm coming, and so uh, so I'm getting ready to go, and then 9/11 hits. And that was a shook. Mm. That that shook me uh, to the core. Um, my sister lived in uh, lived in New York, Manhattan, and she was jogging uh, right before um, the towers got hit. Mm-hmm. She was jogging through the through the area, um, and they couldn't find out she was okay. But that that had a significant impact. And like, okay, we're it, it's on. It's on. It's, it's, it's real now. It's yeah. real. It's it's serious. And so I went to Buds following that. Um, and uh, Buds, it was. It's just a kick in the nuts. That's the best way to explain it. Um, they really challenge you physically, mentally, um, e- almost even spiritually. Um, but I, I needed to stay grounded and you know, what my mom and dad taught me, like don't give up no matter what. And so I went through buds, uh, went through, went through um, there's, so there's several different phases, first, second, third phase, first phase in, um, in doc, second phase is the dive phase, third phase land warfare. Went through all that, graduated. Um, then went through SQ, SQT SEAL qualification training, um, and then um, after one of the one of the last tests, they pulled me inside and said, "We're not going to let you continue because we see some things that that um, we're, that aren't going to allow you to continue training." And so at this point, I was like disheartened, and I was like, "You know what? Well, this is still my dream, so I'm going to do whatever I can." Um, went out to the fleet, ran literally, I, literally from that, I walked over to San Diego or drove over to San Diego. Pier 39, found a cruiser, because I, I talked to a buddy, he goes, John, if you want to become a SEAL, you should go to surface, get your surface warfare pin, you'll learn some things, and you'll try to come back. I'm like, you know what, I need to learn, you're right, I need to, I need to better myself as a leader, and then, and then come back. And so, and so that's what I did, I went out to uh, one of the ships out there, warships, uh, found the USS Port Royal, spent about a year there, working to get my SWO pin. Um, at the end of the day, it didn't work out, um, and so um, I tried to transfer, try to do a direct transfer over to the army. At the time, I guess it was the height height of the war that was going on, and there was this. I get the response that I got was there was too many infantry officers, and so I tried to go direct into special forces. My sister's uh, friend said, "Hey, John, I think you'd be better fit for army for Green Beret." And so um, after that road didn't, um, after trying to go direct, and they said I couldn't. I had, to, I had to do a lat transfer, so I got out of active duty Navy, uh, went through Navy Reserve, transferred to Army Reserve, then transferred through Army National Guard, and then uh, yeah, and then I went through the Q course. I got picked up. You went say that again. That's yeah. interesting. So I went through the Navy. I got out of Navy active, transferred from Navy active to Navy Reserve out of Hawaii. Went to Reserve unit, trans- transferred to an Army Reserve unit. 442nd, 100 Battalion, out of Fort Shafter, Hawaii. 
And then from there, I was at an Army Reserve unit, transferred to an Army National Guard unit, uh, which is the na- ni- 19th Special Forces Group uh, National Guard unit uh, out of uh, Los Alamos, California. And then from there, went to active duty. So I had to go. Oh, that's amazing. I can't imagine the pile of paperwork you had to plod through to make that happen. It was. Uh, it took about five, six years. Um, it took a lot of work, a lot yeah. of effort. Um, yeah. And what drove you during this time? Well, how did you how did you keep that North Star in sight? Um, I think for me, it, I was just determined. Like if I if I got one thing, and I guess that's one thing about me. Like if I'm determined on getting something done, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. Like no matter what, no matter what's in my way. And I think that's just something that God's given me, um, just to be persistent, have to have uh, self discipline, and have a plan. And to, be, and to be determined and to use all your resources available and just don't take no for an answer. Um, those are things that I kind of learned kind of growing up and also just to never never give up. Um, and you can always fail, but just fail falling forward is the, probably the best advice um, that I was given. Yeah. So I got into Special Forces, um, went to the Q course, graduated from the Q course, and got stationed, got stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And... Uh, I guess when I was going through the Q course and, getting, and I got selected to be in Special Forces, you know, a lot of things were a lot of things were like coming into play. It was like, you know what, this is this I, I felt a belonging like this is where I belong. Um, it was just it was just different. It was just a different, and I think I was I was at a different place, but also I just, just being a part of a brotherhood that I saw reminded me of what I saw playing football in the Navy. It was like a guys, um, all walks of life coming in and but they all had a very specific like get the job done attitude and I, and I, I, I like that yeah so I, I didn't realize that you had played uh, varsity football for yeah. the Naval Academy yeah that was uh, well, that was that was a pretty unique and pretty awesome experience um, I got to know I, I just I, I can almost say like I changed like through like because I went to the prep school uh, to play football I got recruited for seven different schools and went to the prep school Naval Academy the prep, uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, mm-hmm. and then just seeing the figures, Clint Bruce and uh, and um, um, uh, the quarterback, famous quarterback, Chuck's going to right now. But to see them come in, I was like, "Hey, these guys I'm seeing on TV," and then I'm out there wearing the we're wearing the uniform, and it's just it's it's awesome, and it's like it's true. It's like it's all about the brotherhood because the guys that that we sweat, you know, I'm sweating with, and I'm pumping iron at six six in the morning doing sprints. And it's like 50 degrees out, and it's like these guys I'm remember for the rest of my life, and like it, it's so true. And then also the, you know, the built up like the Army Navy game, like mm-hmm. it's crazy. Like I had no idea like how big it was coming from here I am, Orange County, California, and you know, clear across the other side of the country, Army Navy game, never heard of it. <laughs> um, and then here I am playing for playing for like the first game, like literally like all like services like literally stopped just to watch that game, just the impact. Of that game where you are literally in the trenches, battling out like who's gonna win, and then not at the very end, we're all brothers. Like yeah. we're all hugging and we're singing each other's songs as much as we hate each other. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that being said, uh, yeah. So what was your record uh, playing against the Army? So we were three and one uh, when we played. Nice. Against, we were, yeah, when we played against the Army, it was. Uh, I, I remember the game that we lost. It was we were in Philadelphia playing at the Memorial Stadium, and we were up by halftime. I think it was third quarter. And on the Army side, they had a p- bunch of fans hanging on a 
a uh, part of their scaffolding, and the scaffolding just fell. Oh, it just you know, literally everything, everything just kind of stopped, and we saw in one moment you saw a bunch of cadets on the ground. Oh no! Was and, everyone okay? Yeah, everyone was okay. Oh. Like the ambulance came in, it was like almost like a 10, 15 minute delay. But that was like a huge momentum shift. Except like everyone felt sorry for West Point, and all of a sudden here we start when <laughs> we start losing again. So it was a huge <laughs> shift. So I, I, I kind of blame it on on <laughs> on that. But uh, all, all all funniness aside, it was a great game. And then again, it was amazing to see like the guys that really that come in after. Like I had Roger Starbuck, Napoleon McCallum. I, we had um, generals, admirals come in and talk to us after the game to just to show wow. like the meaning of of the spirit of the Army Navy game, the rivalry, the long gray line, like the mids, like the meaning and the history that goes back way before us. I mean, it's pretty to be a part of that. It's it's pretty unique, and to see the culture uh, being, you know, you played football for Navy. Oh wow, really? Um, it's it's pretty awesome. It's pretty it's a pretty cool fraternity to be in. And um, again, I still keep in touch with the guys. I took my we took the kids to a previous um, a game last year. It was awesome. I had a great time. Um, my coach, Coach Niamat, so the current coach, he was my offense coordinator. He's awesome. He's a player's coach, and they did really well. So it's it's one of those things, like, as a Navy football player, even though I'm in the Army, uh, as crazy as that sounds. But yeah, we're going to get into that because you <laughs> confused the hell out of me. <laughs> um, like, I still want a rivalry to be – I still want, like, both sides to do well, uh, as crazy as that sounds. But I still want Navy to be on top because it's like that's just – yeah, it's just that's my that's my alma mater. <laughs> Where's the Air Force fit into this? I've always wondered about the Air Force Academy versus uh, the other two services. Yeah, so the Air Force it's a pretty new. It's since it's pretty new. Um, there, I won't say the rivalry is not as deep. Like when we play the Air Force, it's just one of those things where hey, well, look, we want the Commander in Chief's trophy, so we got to beat you know West Point and obviously Air Force. But it's not as deep as it is you know playing Army because literally you walk into the Navy, you walk into our gym. On every single plate, it says "Beat Army." I mean, it is it is it is across every wall, <laughs> um, everywhere you see on campus, you just see "Beat Army." So it's just pretty, it's it's pretty funny. But going back to the Air Force, it's just it's not as um, I don't know. It's just not as I guess the culture or just it's just not, not sure. as deep or tra- the traditions there. But it still ma- it still matters. Mm. What's the overall historical record, like from the first Army Navy game? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. Um, you can make I'll, it up. I, yeah, I think <laughs> our I think Navy's winning. So we so I'll say this: since 2001, there was like a 14 year winning. Um, we've been, Fort Navy's been winning 14 years, and then wow. our, and then Army won back to back, and then Navy won. So it's just, but I think Navy's up. I think by I think 20 or so games. Okay. Yeah. Can you do a quick kind of compare and contrast between? Seal spool up buds and what have you, and the the army courses you had to go through. Yes, so buds. If I had to do a contrast between buds, uh, basic underwater demolition seal, and the special forces qualification course, also known as the Q course, I would say that for me, buds at the time that I went through was very physically, de- very physically demanding, but it was almost like to see if you're worth it, um, f- like physically. The Special Forces Q course was almost mentally challenging, more so physically, and I think it's because I don't and 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 this is just my my bias and my experience, and I just think it's just it's compared different. It's just different. So, Special Forces were designed to you know for internal defense, or were designed to go out, live with our indigenous partners, um, assist, build partner capacity, and the way 
we do the training is very compared to that nature. The SEALs is almost a, almost a direct action focus as I look parts. So it's very, you know, f- physically demanding, uh, you know, blow open doors, go in, uh, take care of what you got to take care of and get out. But as far as the special forces, you are living, breathing, eating. And so understanding their language, understanding their culture, and understanding how to live with your consequences. Every decision that you make, there's a consequence, either positive or negative. And so by going through, for example, Robin Sage, um, and your, which is a pretty awesome. So special force qualification course, obviously the first part, you do you know, uh, infantry tactics. And uh, then the second part that I went through back in 2008, um, you do an MOS portion, so the 18 alphas. There's different MOSs, you know, you know uh, 18 alphas, the officers went through an 18 alpha course where you do mission planning. Primary focus is on mission planning because as an officer, as an, eight, as an 18 alpha, you are, you're there to mission plan, to help, help your guys mission plan and to help your guys um, indigenous forces mission plan. You're the thinker. You're the, you're the brain. Uh, there's another other guys that do other specific jobs. We have weapons. We have the communication. We have a, we have a medic. But your job there is to is to plan, uh, strategic. So um, and so that I would say that's the biggest thing. And so after that, then we go into MOS. Where after following MOS, you go into language where we do, we learn a specific language on the region that we're going to, and then and then you go right into Robin Sage. Robin Sage is probably the biggest exercise on the East Coast. Um, so it's uh, you, they send in ODAs um, and they send it to anywhere in North Carolina, South, South Carolina. Um, and they have to, you know, help their indigenous forces build build partner capacity. So help them with their defense posture, and then help them um, overcome whatever obstacle is in front of their way. So that's you know resistance, um, strengthening their resistance networks, or, or or so have you. The best thing about Robin Sage is that every action that you take is you see the consequences, and that is perfect because you don't see that because it's and it could be life and death, and so. Why, why, what I enjoy and what I like about Robin Sage is they give you a taste of what you might see out in Iraq, Afghanistan. And so that's why I, that, 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 uh, that environment is very, um, it's almost like active learning because you get to see the consequences of what, what you're doing. As opposed to the SEALs, the SEALs don't have that because, again, it's more mission, they're more, they're more kinetic, uh, mission-focused as far as uh, direct action. So you don't get to see that. Um, and so that's and so I kind of thrived in that Robin Sage area um, because I was able to kind of see, understand my my indigenous partners, understand the problems that they're facing, put myself in their shoes, and be able to make a better decision making based upon that. So I think that was more effective. And so so all the lessons you learned during uh, SF training, mm-hmm. give us some examples of what you did real world. So so. Um, I graduated from, the, graduated from the Q course in February, went to third group. Third group, um, I was stationed on ODA, a dive team, and we were scheduled to deploy to Afghanistan. So within, uh, I would say about five months from graduating, I deployed to Afghanistan with a team, wow. which, which is pretty quick. And some team, and some guys are deploying right away. So I had the opportunity to deploy with a group of guys, all young guys. Um, and so here I am. We get to Kandahar. We get to Tarankal. And we're going to stand up a village stability operations um, just uh, just north of Kandahar. And so the Afghans at the time, they didn't have a, a local uh, built-up police. And so we had to literally take, you know, scrounging around, looking for village elders, looking for men to help build their force. And so that's what we're doing. 
um, one of the things that I had to do was build rapport. So as you know, as a U.S. face, you're jumping into someone else's country, and you're there, and you're and they're and you're they're you're pretty much asking them, hey, look, I'm here to help you, and they're looking and they're lo- and they're looking at you, okay, how do you help us? So building rapport was huge, and so I think within two three weeks, um, we had a medcap, uh, giving you know medical facility or providing them medical care, but I think the I think that one of the biggest things was there was a little boy. I think he was I think he was four years old and he got attacked by a dog mm. and the dog had um, made a huge gash on his face and on his scalp and so and it was almost a life and death scenario so um, I had I had direct, I, I had called up to my hire and said hey look we need a, a medevac and this I gave him the situation great and I told him this is this is what I need I need a helicopter I need to medevac him and his dad and get him help um, I got pushback right I got pushback. But finally, I got the I got the call uh, from I think Colonel Bulldog, General Bulldog at the time. Um, he approved it, Don Bulldog, and uh, it was awesome. So we got the helicopter. It was like nine o'clock at night. Helicopter came down, medevaced. Uh, my 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 uh, my medics did an awesome job. Though 18 Deltas are our med- medics, mm-hmm. uh, they did an awesome job of just just uh, providing aid until the until the helicopters came in. And they swooped in. We loaded them up, and then they, they flew off. So here it is, about four weeks. Four weeks later, um, the elder comes, and he wanted to say thank you. And I'm like, thank, thank you. For, what, what, what do we do? And he goes, thank you. The boy survived, and the dad w- just wanted to say thank you. And so here it was uh, another <laughs> at another meeting. We went up there, and the boy was sta- was hit where I was right there, playing with his dad. And that, for me, that was and and it was weird because. The side of us, you could see the scar where the dog had scratched, and there was hair. And so, um, to me, that was like a small victory. And you could see the smile on his dad's face, even though they were more hesitant. But you could just say that, you know, thank you. And I was like, wow. I mean, that small gesture went a long way. So, that's that's awesome. Is there? I'm curious. I mean, you are the epitome of where there's a will, there's a way. You had mentioned earlier that. Every decision mm-hmm. has consequences. Are there any, operationally, did you ever make any bad decisions, had bad consequences, and you had to fix the situation? I was, uh, here I am, I'm the softly Special Operation Forces Liaison in, in, in Niamey, Niger. I worked at the U.S. Embassy. And um, all the soft operations that's goes, that, goes, that, that's, that, that is carried out in the, the country of, of Niger, um, like uh, I, I'm like the direct conduit from uh, Special Operations Command Africa and Africom, and so at the time, Boko Haram was 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 becoming. It was in 2013, 2014, was becoming um, a huge a huge terror group. I mean, they're just rapage, raping and pillaging um, everything they can get their hands on. And so what had happened? It was on the border of of Niger border and Difa that they were coming across from Nigeria. Um, and they were coming north, and so we had a team that was stationed there in Diffa. Um, I guess what had happened is that why there, what, what, why the Bokaram were coming across the border, I was not. Um, I had got somehow. I was not around. I didn't get the message that they needed support. That there was. We had a team down there, and they needed support. And so the AOB commander had to go direct. I think he had to go direct to. South Africa to get permission so he can go out. 
when I finally got back, I realized that what was happening, um, I was able to j- jump on and try to, you know, take his, you know, at the time, uh, get permission from the, we were already going in. And so at the time, get more uh, approval and assurance from the U.S. ambassador. And so I think looking back, um, you know, as a liaison, ha- communication is huge because no matter what happens, something can go wrong and you need to be available. And so I think for me, I wasn't available at that time. And if I had a chance to do it all again, I would have made sure that like every communication effort was on me, on my person, just so I can assist the guys that are out there because they're, they're out there. Um, and I'd hate to put them in a position where they don't have approval, where they could do something to protect themselves and to protect our guys that they're with. So um, I think that was probably the biggest one. So 2014 rolls around. Mm-hmm. You were, you're still in Africa? Yes. Okay. What, uh, what was your knowledge of what was going on in Crimea? So it was coming in. Uh, obviously, Boko Haram was, was pretty big, um, and Mali was starting to go off. And so with Crimea... Um, all we knew was, was that there was an issue in Crimea, uh, Russia, mil- there was some protests that started. It started out to be a protest, and then Russian military got involved. And so Sakir and UCOM really, um, things started to really speed up, and that became like the hot spot, the next hot spot. And I'll, I'll almost say that we're almost on two different planets, because we, in, Afri- in Africa, in the, you know, they say it's a venture con, because literally every day is something new. And there could be, you know, it could be an uprising, there could be a protest, there could be a coup, which makes things, you know, make your job a lot more exciting. But in Europe, specifically most of the countries there, you know, it's very rare that, that you're getting a coup or, or at any day. So, but to hear like a Crimea pop up, um, my only thought was, okay, that's probably, you know, Russia's, they're doing, you know, hybrid warfare, um, so, something, something's going on. Um, so I didn't really pay that much attention to it. After Africa, uh, how did you get from Africa to NPS? So, uh, great question. So, um, spent, yeah, spent three years at Special Operations Command Africa, SOC Africa, had an awesome time in Germany, um, and then also traveling, and then just traveling to all the countries um, to see kind of like there's other parts of the world other than the U.S. Um, it was a pretty amazing experience for me and my family. Um, I got orders to the headquarters for Special Forces Command at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, um, and so I got to see from the, from an enterprise perspective, what, how big, and what and what are we doing? Um, and so we have all the active duty groups, and we had the civil affairs, and we also had the psyops, as a as a full picture, as a full enterprise, as a full tribe. What are we doing as a whole? So I really got to understand, uh, you know, the authorities, policy, and how things are and how things are are kind of working. Um, right when I got there, I'll answer I'll answer your question. Um, right when I got there, Syria hit, and so oh, Syria was going ISIS. So I went out to Syria uh, to be the uh, t- the task force south uh, LNO. Um, that was pretty. That was a pretty awesome experience uh, to work with the the guys out there, the Kurds, and spend some time with them. We had fifth group out there at the time, so it was pretty cool to see what those guys were doing. They were doing some great work. By the time I got back, um, I had prepared my replacement so good that they that she took over my job for good so I really didn't have a job and so <laughs> well, so um, I came back and they said okay John we're gonna, we're gonna you're gonna help out the three seven so training exercise and training I'm like okay great I know nothing about exercise and training so we finished uh, Fort Bragg and we head over to MPS so as a 10th group our main problem set is Russia and so with Russia as being as Russia the current adversary 
um, and they're already you know nuclear messaging and with crime with Crimea and Ukraine. Um, what's soft? What's what is soft's role and is it effective? And so I wanted to do a deep dive and to see what's from a from a deterrence perspective, you know, understanding our nuclear nuclear capabilities as as as, as a country and our understanding our nuclear triad. Where does it say you know based on national security strategy in 2018, John uh, Mattis specifically states that Russia's main aim is to combat, is to um, dissuade Western influence. And so with that being said, what is SOFT, how can SOFT contribute to the overall deterrence, uh, overall deterrence from the United States to Russia? And so I did, and so that was kind of like my, so I looked at it from a nuclear perspective, uh, but also from a, from a tactical perspective, because we have guys that are in Europe that are doing some great things. Um, what's how is our tactical deterrence results coming up with strategic effects? So you're looking into this while you're still at the training group, or you're thinking these things while you're still at the training group? So I was thinking these things. Follow. So I guess I was thinking about these things right when I got here, because the first thing they tell you, and the talk after talking to my colleagues or the peers I've already graduated, is John, the first semester. Start thinking about what you want to do, uh, and so what made me want to go down the nuclear realm um, was I was fascinated by nuclear weapons, and that's just something that I just when I got here, um, I remember that my one of my first class was I just took a nuclear, nuclear strategic weapons from Dr. Larson, and nice. that was an awesome class. I took most of my classes were from uh, National Security Affairs, uh, Professor Moltz, Russian Foreign Policy, um, uh, Dr. Tipson. Um, Russia's military, uh, all these different classes on Russia's nuclear threshold, their deterrent strategies, their military doctrine, um, Drosimov's model, their hybrid warfare model, and how does nuclear how does nuclear messaging and Russia's nuclear nuclear um, arsenal plays a key role into their strategy? And so, what what I learned from me, what I learned looking at all this stuff is how is how important nuclear weapons are, and and really if a country um, and and this is why I, I later learned, you know, and um, one of the classes in DA uh, that I took from Professor Volpe. If a country has nuclear weapons, they, they have a they have a say, they have a, they have a, they have a say at the table amongst all the amongst all the superpowers. If the countries that do not, the non-state actors and the countries that don't have nuclear weapons, they're, they're either going to try to a they're going to try to get one, b they're going to try to leverage some type of weapons of mass destruction, whether that's a chemical, biological weapon, or they'll find some other alternative. And so in order to get their voice heard or, to, or just to get credibility. And so um, I think I, after understanding that, for me, that fascinated me on why, you know, Iran, uh, North Korea, these countries that are, you know, North Korea has a nuclear weapon, but also trying to get more enhanced, uh, Iran on the other side, trying to get, gain that capability. So for me, that was um, uh, that was that was uh, fascinating. And how did this lead into your thesis? So I first you so I first used um, you know how does soft for how does soft contribute to deterrence and insurance mission in Europe? So looking at I wanted to do I wanted to really look at our nuclear posture and really understand our nuclear capabilities. You know as 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 a country, and so. I wanted to see where we were, where were there some vulnerabilities? You know, again, based on the 2018 national security strategy, 
Russia's main aim is to weaken U.S. influence and divide the United States from its allies and its partners. So understanding that Russia has a large and diverse nuclear weapons, that complicates our relationship with NATO and also the United States as a whole because if because of our, our 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 stance. Like if we go to war, I mean it's 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 gonna be it's gonna be serious. So and so with that, I wanted to see our is soft I guess is policymakers really leveraging soft. And so what I did is I did a um, a risk I did a risk comparison, a risk assessment of soft's core activities. And so there are currently eleven of them that that are focusing on um, that I focus on. And so, you know, hostage rescue, there's some that I really couldn't, uh, it's hard to, to dive deep into those, but, you know, building, but foreign internal defense, um, direct, direct action, civil affairs, unconventional, special reconnaissance, um, all these uh, preparation for the environment, all these core tasks, are we really utilizing them to get more out of them? Are, are, they, are, they, getting the, are they getting the full brunt of what our capabilities can do? And so that's what I did is I used um, research. I went into, I just did case studies of what we're currently doing in, in, these specific, um, in these specific core tasks. But I also look at the, the biggest risk. So with, from a nuclear, if we were going to do a direct action um, in, you know, along, along the Russian periphery, is that going to start, is that going to start things? Is that going to initiate escalation? Or can we use building partner capacity with our NATO soft brothers, giving them capabilities to de-escalate? And so that's and so I looked at different methods. I looked at the Lithuanian Forest Brothers as an example. I looked at different resistance groups, resistance, resistance and resiliency groups, and I've learned that you know through sabotage they're able to affect through attrition to to affect the tide of of, of a conflict. Hmm. And so the Baltic states. Really, that was one of the key things. They have s- several different things in place as their sh- as their uh, defense plan. So they have a c- kind of civilian def- uh, civilian um, people's defense um, plan where the large large group um, in large you know you know the police and you know the bakery they all have a role to play in case Russia wasn't to come across. Um, and so and specifically Russia, they like to target their rush the the Russian communities along the Baltic mm-hmm. states as kind of like you know as a way to get into the specific countries. So that's through media, that's through cyber attacks. And so they're gonna leverage their, their you know, those small communities. And so for the, from a uh, Baltic state, from, a, from their defense posture, they have to be very vigilant. Everyone has to be aware of some warnings, you know, warnings and signals that may come out. And everyone, ha- everyone has to have a role. And so these resistance techniques uh, that I think soft special oper- special operation forces can can be leveraged more because that's that, that's their design to do that. They're designed. There's this, they come in small packages. Um, they're not as as compared to a conventional force because we send in an entire eighty second. Uh, it builds a big uh, footprint and we don't want to escalate. So by sending in just small a small unit ODAs about twelve guys, um, they go in. They're 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 uh, they have different and unique capabilities that are provided to build other 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 forces. Mm-hmm. So so just curious, there there's strong as you mentioned strong Russian communities in Lithuania. Some, uh, from what I recall, 25, 35 percent of the population or so. Are they included in the uh, in the contingency plans of the Lithuanians? 
I believe, and I, so I can't say because um, I, I again, this is just from an unclass, um, unclass per, uh, perspective, sure. And just what I've what I've been reading, um, they said all the civilians are at some at, at at one point have a role into the plan, and I'm I'm sure I don't know if there's a vetting process or, or that sort of thing, but um, but just understanding, and I think the you know the Baltics and NATO, they understand that Russia. You know, there's several different mechanisms how Russia's hybrid warfare and Russian aggression is being used. Uh, cyber warfare, uh, that's through their special operations, uh, their little green men, how they start protests, um, uh, or they start protests and, and they build relationships with, with specific regions, specific leaders to start protests. Um, and so they can start an uprising. Um, so we have cyber, we have uprising. Well, that's through messaging, um, social media, they have biker gangs, and so what I've noticed mm-hmm. is that they have biker games, and they have a specific flag in along the Baltics and also in NATO in NATO countries that these biker games are carrying the message that Putin wants. Yeah, it's very it's it's you know, it's it's very easy to see. I was um, in Hungary for the last five years, and in Slovakia and Hungary, they're present. Yeah, it's very. I mean, you can just see the messaging and where they're going and where they're and starting uprisings. Um, the church, so you know, the Oligarch Church. Uh, messaging as well, um, but also it's just through you know small protests and they're recruiting. They're recruiting heavily in these in these Russian communities in order for them to uh, continue their messaging and also continue with their with their uh, national objectives. So um, they're they're fulfilling their tactical objectives that are meeting their strategic objectives. So it's very um, yeah, it's very real. It's going on. Um, and again, I think that's where soft. Uh, soft core tasks when applied uh, when applied to achieve a comprehensive deterrent strategy against Russian aggression uh, could be vital in, in ensuring these um, ensuring uh, a couple things it builds partner capacity it provides institutional linkages it provides a US it provides a message to our US partners and allies that US is committed US is committed and we're not going anywhere and so <clears throat> by allowing um, by leveraging soft all these things were now, we're not only showing our um, our commitment to our partners, but only uh, the stability of the country and also to the stability of NATO. Uh, because, again, Russia's main aim is just to weaken uh, weaken Western influence, specifically in NATO. And that's by, um, and by that's through any means necessary. Now, your thesis communicates a very important message. Have you been able to get it in front of decision makers? So, yes, I have been able to brief it. I briefed it. To uh, several different uh, policymakers, so I, brief, I was able to brief it to uh, Secretary uh, Secretary Panetta here. Uh, when I interviewed him, he said it was a great topic, uh, definitely something I should continue and try to get it into other policymakers. Um, when I went to D.C., I went to the Carnegie. I briefed uh, to the DASD at the time. Um, I met with some other uh, people from. Um, uh, from Washington D.C., also the Center for Strategic and International Studies, um, they had a summer conference. Uh, it's called the Project of Nuclear I- Project on Nuclear Issues Summer Conference at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which I was already I was already a visiting scientist there, doing work, and so I briefed it. Um, they had a pretty large. Um, so their base it's in um, Washington, and so with the with the COVID pandemic. They did a virtual conference, and so, um, so they asked. Uh, so they had different uh, speakers present their, their, uh, their topics, and then I briefed my thesis, and so I had a pretty good response uh, when I briefed it. 
Um, and, I, and I also had great questions of, as far as, okay, if, we, if you had a place anywhere, would SOP be, you know, be postured? Looking at, looking at your thesis and understanding Russia's capabilities and looking at NATO's vulnerabilities, uh, where could soft better be used? Which was a great question, and I, and I answered, you know, definitely it makes sense, Poland. The Swaki Gap mm. um, is the key heel to NATO. Um, even though we have the enhanced postures spread out throughout um, a large, you know, that, that Swaki, that 60-mile corridor where Russia can use the, the Belarus and to go through, uh, that it, that could be a key heel to our NATO NATO partners, and so by building partner capacity and also by providing um, our our brethren at the tactical level uh, systems and processes so they can communicate communicate that to their higher, I think that would better a better affect um, uh, our NATO NATO partners. Just a quick side note: Have you worked with the Grom at all? No, I haven't. Okay, just curious. Yeah. So you said something there a second ago, and you just kind of went through it. Visiting scientist at Lawrence Livermore. I don't know how you do all these things, but tell me more about that. What what, what are you doing up there? So my uh, my number one, my thesis advisor is Zachary Zachary Davis. Um, he's awesome, awesome guy. Um, he's had a ton of experience um, in this uh, working at Lawrence Livermore, but also in the policy uh, in the policy realm. And so he's like the subject matter expert on on deterrence, um, strategic deterrence. So I was blessed to have him. He's just a huge. He's just. He's just. He's just, he's an awesome guy. Um, he, he also wrote a book just on uh, graduate studies, right? And graduate skills you need in graduate school. No. Yes, yep. he wrote several different books: strategic latency, um, uh, with uh, Michael Knott, and uh, just several different um, writings and publications. And so, just to get his perspective, and also, and so he mentioned, "Hey, John, we have a bunch of scientists up here that would love to have." Um, a soft a special forces guy up here so just consider coming up here and just talking to him um, come up here do a walkabout and um, yeah we'll try to get you something something set up post post graduation and so I kept on getting uh, assistance from the staff here Colonel Richardson uh, and the DA uh, and, and the DA uh, staff as well and everything got approved and so I was able to become a visiting scientist at Lawrence Livermore to further my research into um, into some other other projects was which was awesome. Got and that's to, while you were stationed at NPS before your next assignment, essentially. Correct. Fantastic. So I had some t- a little a break, a small break before I headed to my next assignment. So uh, yes. So you talk about research in almost fawning terms. I, I mean, you know, sitting here talking with you, you really seem to get excited about it. Tell me, did you expect that when you first came to NPS? And and follow-on question. What would you like to research next? So I didn't expect that when I got here. Um, to be honest with you, I just wanted family time when I got here. Hey, we're going to California. Sure. Uh, let me get a surfboard. Uh, my family, we're, we're on, you know, <laughs> we've I've been on the go. Uh, so we need to take a step back. I need to take a knee um, and really, really invest in my family. Um, my family, my wife, we, they've been, um, you know, bearing the brunt of me going in and out and leaving. And so... We really needed to take a, you know, sit down together, figure out where we're going as a family, and just really just, you know, heal, build relationships, and just have fun. Uh, there's tons of stuff to do on, on the West Coast. And so and so that's what I did. I, try, I just really tried to make sure um, it was a great time. But, what, but when I got here, um, you know, I've, you know, from my colleagues, they were like, yeah, just the best advice I got here was, hey, John, while you're here, make the best out of it. And so 
you're gonna get a lot of time downtime with your family but just make the just make the best out of it and so that's what i did uh that's the best advice i'd I'd give to guys that are coming in um the military's gonna army's paying you for you to to be here they're paying for you to build your build how you think and to take these classes and to understand the consequences of all these actions that are going on uh, around the world and so why not take the time take a pause to really sit down you really don't the army doesn't give you time to really uh, uh, everything's really compartmentalized and so this is the time to really unpack all that and to really sit back and think about decisions that were made and some of the stuff that the policy that's going on and and to and to second guess it and to second and to second guess things that are going on and to make it better and so these classes that I took after getting his advice um, it was it was awesome it was the best advice I could I could take and so that's why I took full advantage of um, I, I, I took a different track and so not only with the defense analysis classes I took national security classes um, I took some other you know some other classes with some business classes because I just wanted I just wanted to build me you know. Um, when I leave here, I'm going to be a leader somewhere. And so with all these classes, it's just going to make me better. And so I'd rather be better. I want to be better for the next guy and for the troops that I'm going to, that I'm going to be in charge of. Um, I want to make sure that the decisions that I'm making, uh, that I'm going to get them back to their families. And so by understanding, by bettering myself, understanding the situation, understanding the, the, the risks that are involved, and understanding how they meet not only the, the, the intent but also at the – at the tactical level, but also at the strategic level and also at the operational level. That makes me a better person and a better officer. And so um, I want to make sure that I come, that I'm going this, going, I'm jumping, I'm embracing this, this time. And you found a way to do that through your research? I did. And so, uh, so understanding, you know, Russia, I really, uh, through my research, I really understood, I I was able to, you know, no one can really understand the mindset of, of, the Russian the Russian government. I, I'd be amazed <laughs> if anyone did. <laughs> I really would. Uh, yeah. Um, so to really understand like Putin's decisions and Jarosimov's model, to see like to understand their doctrine, their escalation doctrine, uh, to just to look at it and just to ask questions about it. Um, you you it just it gives you an understanding of kind of wow that's you know. They're on a different playing field than we are. They're seeing things differently, just on a different playing field. Um, and so it's just to understand, like, the decisions that they made, uh, what, you know, what they are surrounding themselves with, the leaders that they are, the investments that they are to making to, with other countries. You can kind of see a blueprint of of the direction on where Putin is going, or or have an understanding of where he wants Russia, the country, to be at, or rather, you know. A formidable power. He, he wants to be on the same, the same playing field as the United States, um, and so as they're making uh, trade investments, as their economy, uh, their mil- they're they're bolstering their their military in the Caspian Sea, but also on the periphery of the Na- of the NATO countries, and specifically they're bol- they're bolstering their nuclear weapons, their arsenal. You can kind of see where Putin Putin wants he wants uh, a bigger stage. He wants um, a bigger platform. Um, he, he wants respect from everyone else. Um, well, they're setting themselves up to dominate the Arctic right now, too. No? Yeah, that, oh, that too, yes. Um, and so it's, um, it's, just, it's just interesting. For me, that's interesting. So I think that – so look, so go back to your, go back to your question. That's going to make me um, – that's going to make me better as a leader, understanding that at the strategic level, this is, the, this is Russian aggression. This is the opponent that we're looking at. 
and this will make me better when I make those decisions as far as placing or it's placing um, you know certain personnel to different different locations and so forth so if you could if you could write your next job description uh, what would you want to do for the next three years uh, to be quite honest with you um, I definitely want to after I've been studying the Russian problem set for the two years um, I would I guess my dream job would be in Europe with the NATO with one of our soft NATO partners uh, again building their looking at what they have at their disposal and figuring out how to make them better um, and understanding Russian aggression and Russia's uh, mo model um, figuring out ways now we can get them better and I think a lot of times I think from us uh, what hurts us from a US perspective is um, our authorities and our policy it really it limits what we can do and so that's something that I would like to learn and get and get better at um, as a leader, but also when I see uh, areas where we could fully leverage, where soft can better contribute to the overall picture of how we're protecting our partners. What keeps you up at night, operationally, strategically thinking? Uh, tactically, what keeps me up at night, I have a five-year-old. Uh, he <laughs> wakes up at four in the morning, climbs in to bed, and so I have very little leg room. Um, what keeps me up at night? Um, so every day, you know, I'm I'm always on the news, or just I just, I kind of see what's how the world is uh, is, is is moving towards. Uh, obviously, with the latest thing with COVID, um, it's uh, it's um, that is uh, among other things is it, it just alarms me to see like wh where where are we going and how are we trying to fix it. Um, I would say that's that's one. An, uh, another issue is to see, uh, no, China. What is China doing, and how their economy, uh, and what you know in the South China Sea? What what moves are they taking? Like, they're building an island out there, and, and then the next, like, what's the next thing? Um, North Korea, uh, Kim Jong Un. I know his sister is starting to take some of the leadership role. Uh, is he going away? Are they doing? Um, is this you know are they looking at uh, different different measures uh, and obviously Russia uh, Iran if Iran's ever uh, what's the situation in Iran so I'm looking at all these opponents I'm looking at like where are we going uh, what what are the other what our adversaries are doing and how are we um, and how are we making ourselves better as, as, a, as a country as, as a whole I know there's a lot of things that internal that we have to do to ensure that we're up to that challenge and so I, it's just I hope that we're able to uh, come together, and then we're able to kind of look at these challenges. Mm -hmm. This might be a tough one, but if you could make, if you could write just one paper or make one presentation um, that of on a topic you haven't explored yet, or maybe the continuation of, of something you have explored, what would that paper or presentation title be, and what would be the general uh, elevator speech on it? Um, I would have to look at, you know, soft role in great power competition with with China and Russia which countries that are really s slow that are making their moves um, how can we leverage soft um, soft capabilities soft core tasks to uh, to better meet uh, the US uh, strate uh, strategic objectives strategic and national objectives um, and again, I think with 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 soft's capabilities uh, and with our core tasks, there's so many things that we can do that that are not being utilized. Um, and I think if we could just relook at that, um, 
and again, there's there's certain things that I'm not um, that I haven't said before as far as you know policy um, uh, that, that's currently out there. But I think that would be I'll be probably my next paper uh, that I that I, have to, that, that I have to look at. I, I, I did a, a paper for Lawrence Livermore, Dr. Zach Davis did a strategic um, latent, uh, latency on, on Russia's Russia's capabilities. I did a, a publishing a chapter on Putin's uh, Putin's weapon, uh, the Great Little Green Men or Spetsnaz, Special Forces, and how he uses them are are widely different the way we use them. So with he the way he uses them, he uses them you know for protests you know start starting cyber. Um, c- cyber war and um, building uprisings and it's those you know sabotage uh, those type of things and they're on there and what I what I learned is that Spetsnaz they're on every uh, they're at each level so they're at you know they're at the the Revolutionary Guard they're with the um, they're with the in- military intelligence unit they're with their Navy unit there's different Spetsnaz um, throughout the Russian military and they're used at, di- at you know in different c- different capacities um, compared to the way the United States uses them to meet strategic objectives, but yet we don't use them the way Putin uses them because we have higher standards. So I don't look at that as a uh, compare contrast, but I look at that as hey, are we fully leveraging what our capabilities are doing? I mean, we have great men and women um, that are out there training um, and doing some great things, and are we u- really utilizing? Uh, the benefits of what they're doing. Fantastic. What's the best investment in yourself that you've ever made? Uh, the best investment, marrying my wife. That's number one. My faith, I've always been a uh, big believer um, in, in my faith, and I, I dedicate that to my mom and dad. Um, they really made sure that before I left the house, you know, I made sure that um, my my spiritual walk um, uh, was was there. And it was it was rooted and it was grounded because things life's gonna change, but if your spiritual rock is rooted, um, you'll 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 be fine. You'll be okay. Um, and then having a you know an awesome wife, uh, Tia's been Tia's been there. I mean, she's taking care of the family, taking care of me, uh, takes care of the kids. Uh, so it's just been a pretty um, a, a pretty awesome ride. I could not imagine without her uh, the ride that I, I would be on because it's just. Um, it wouldn't have been that much uh, enjoyable, um, but she makes it. Um, she makes it that much more. She makes it that much more better. So, awesome. What advice would you give to your twenty-three-year-old self? Twenty-three-year-old self. Twenty-three-year-old self. That's a great question. Um, so at twenty-three, I so I started the Naval Academy at twenty-one. I was pretty old, um, and I was at twenty-three. I think I was starting my senior year or finishing my junior year. And so if I had to look back and tell him, it's not the destination, it's the journey. And you're going to meet a lot of great people, and you're going to lose a lot of great people. My, my sponsor mom passed away uh, this year um, at the Naval Academy uh, when I was there. She was like my second mom. And so uh, I'll just tell him just to... Uh, Enjoy the moment. Enjoy the now. Don't look too far ahead um, because it's, it's going to come. But really enjoy the now and make every effort to make to make those memories because um, you may not have those people for a long time. So, um, yeah. How was your 
how is your 10, wait, how old are you right now? 43. Okay. How is your 53-year-old self going to be different from you right now? Uh, I think a lot, I'm hoping to be a lot more smarter, uh, <laughs> a lot more smarter, yeah. I think I'm hoping to be smarter, um, yeah, in 10 years, um, wherever, wherever I'll be. Um, yeah, so hopefully my kids will be in college. I want to say the first will be in college, hopefully. Um, and I think what's going to define how I am as a parent, um, I mean, grant the military is going to be an awesome, awesome experience, but one day the military is going to be, uh, well, one day I'm going to walk away from the military. And so, and so my best gift, the way that, um, like my report card is going to be my kids and, and t- them telling me, you know, dad, you're always there or just seeing how successful they are is going to be, is going to show like how I was as a parent. And so at 53, a good, a good, uh, example or a good way for me to see where I, where I was is to see how my kids are, to see where they are and then schooling and college, how their grades, how how are they building relationships? Because I think life is about relationships, building relationships, and uh, making them work. We're all in this thing called life uh, as a community, and so we can't go through this by ourselves. So it's those relationships that really make us. It really makes a big difference. And so by having these strong, awesome relationships, um, and so I, I think my kids, their response to how I was as a parent, as a dad, my wife. Um, their response is going to be kind of like how I was or how I did. Um, if I was horrible, if they were, you know, if they if they got off the beaten path and uh, they're not doing good in school, then I, I messed up. I messed up the long way. Um, but um, you know, if their their spiritual walk's good and they're in school and good, good good grades and they have their head on their shoulder and they have an idea of what they want to do, they're on track. I could say, look back and say, you know what? I, I did an okay job. I'm, I'm happy. All right, last question. What is the one thing NPS students should take away from their time here? You mentioned a couple, one or two things already, but uh, what, what would you say the one thing is? Uh, I don't have like a one thing. I have a bunch of things, mm-hmm. and I'll go off that. So the biggest thing, um, again, um, military is paying you to come here, prior education, you know, strategic level thinking. Uh, to be at your next position, you're going to be – making making decisions and so this is the best time to better yourself uh, to fill you know gaps that you weren't smart on uh, make yourself better um, so you, once you move in that position you're you're ready to go you're, you're ready to hit the ground hit the ground running um, next thing is your family make sure your family is set take care of your family because again after here you'll you'll be uh, on the on the on the field again so Making sure that your family has everything, make enjoyable moments every weekend. Try to do something. Um, start, um, start little. Um, what you call it? Um, like you know, every Thursday do a game night. Every Friday do a family night. Do walks. Um, coach your kids. I got to coach all my kids uh, sports: basketball, baseball, soccer. Uh, it was awesome. Um, is it once in a lifetime uh, opportunity I get a chance? Do those things. Take full advantage of it. Do everything, because um, you you just you just don't know. Because when it's times up, you'll have to get. When when times up and your unit calls you to deploy, um, they're gonna look back at what you invested while you're back out of here, and so it makes a big difference. If you are focusing on trying to get an A on that one paper, 
than spending two hours with your kids reading them a story. They're gonna remember that, and and also, and you might remember that too. So, those are little things. Um, you can get straight A's here, not spend any time with your family, or you can get you know a B, a couple B's, get B's there, and then just have a blast and doing things. Get buy buy a pop up, buy a camper, go to the beach, um, go down to Cabo Robles, and really enjoy it. Um, and, and again, really enjoy the family. So it's things like that. Uh, take full advantage of the resources here, not only at MPS, but also around here. You have Middlebury Institute, Lawrence Livermore National Lab, um, uh, that, that's forward. You have Stanford and Berkeley. Uh, try to you know build a network so when you leave, if you want to pursue that following, like a PhD, um, that might be something that you want to uh, continue. So uh, build a network and uh, make sure you're um, – you're, you're in touch with those, those guys that can, you know, write a recommendation for you, a professor or your thesis advisor, stay in touch with them. Um, yeah. Awesome, John. This was, this was fantastic. Thanks for your time. Uh, cheers. Cheers. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded on July 16, 2020. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.